Hi, I'm Ali, Salon Director at the Head Gardener Hair Salon in Inverness, and I'm delighted to be sponsoring this brilliant new podcast called Lump. It's honest, raw, challenging, funny, and very, very sweary. But let's face it, cancer is a bit bloody sweary. One last thing, make sure you rate, like, and share Lump wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a million, and over to Penny. Well, for this episode of Lump, I'm talking to Dr. Liz O'Riordan, and it's all a bit poacher-turned-gamekeeper because Liz was a breast surgeon. I say was because in 2015, at the age of 40, she was diagnosed with breast cancer herself. And a bit further down the line, she was forced to retire because of it. Since then, she's made it her mission to write and talk about her experiences in a bid to help others and to open up the conversation about the really chewy, difficult, dark stuff of life, to talk about the really shitty stuff that comes with cancer in a very open way. So as you can imagine, she's a woman very much after my own heart, and I've really wanted to talk to her for a long time. Liz, thank you so much for finding the time to um, join me for Lump. Great to finally meet you. Um. I always think this is a bit of a loaded question, but I wanted to start with a how are you? Um, I say it's loaded because I think when you hit the cancer community, you never know quite what's coming back, do you? Um, what's the current status for you? What's the current state of play? I'm doing all right. So I had a second local recurrence in July this year, actually the day before my memoir launched. And I've had surgery, but the collateral damage of the treatment I'm on to stop me getting meds in the future is really tough to deal with. I have a bum injection in each cheek once a month, blood tests, and I'm on a CDK inhibitor. So my hair is thinning. I've got horrible mouth. Things taste weird. I'm insomnia. And it's it's hard knowing I'm going to be on those drugs for life. Really knowing there's a life. chance I might not. Yeah, there's, I'm on them for life unless my cancer comes back or I die. And it's hard knowing I could have 20, 30 years of these side effects. Um, and I might not need them because it might never come back in the first place. So that's the kind of weird headspace I'm in. And do side effects like that, I mean, are, is there any chance, do you know, of them them um, subsiding a little bit as your body gets used to yeah. the meds? I think they do. I think after the first six to nine months, you do get used to it. Like the menopause, you get used to not having much estrogen. So I'm hoping, I've only been on them for three months or so, so I'm hoping I will settle down. But just feeling a bit sorry for myself, which is a bit of a, a, a low way to start the show. So sorry about that. Well, it's honest. And, and yeah. honesty is the whole point. And I said it was a loaded question when I asked, how are you? Because I find um, people who, who sort of not had the experience of having had cancer, when they say, how are you? You can see them really desperate yeah. to go, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of all they want to hear, really. Not it the, is. Actually, today's shit. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, I'd much rather you were honest, especially since, you know, we're coming from the same kind of uh, yeah area of experience um can we jump straight back in Liz and and dive back to when you were diagnosed back in 2015 Hmm. um how I mean how did you find out I saw a lump in the mirror I just got out of the shower. I never checked my breasts. I didn't think it would happen to me. I'll be completely honest. I was 40. I'd had a cyst about six months before with a normal mammogram scan. I wasn't worried. It was only my mum who said, look, will you please get it checked out? And I didn't get seen in my own hospital where I worked. I went to a hospital just down the road where I'd been trained, not expecting it to be anything. And my mammogram was normal. 
and I had an ultrasound and I looked at the screen and I knew. So most patients are drip fed information. You have a biopsy, you come back for the results. You have cancer, you come back for the results. I saw the screen and whilst they were drawing up the local for the biopsy, I thought, right, it's big and I'm young. I'll need a mastectomy. I'll need chemo. I've got a good idea what my 10 year survival might be. And my life turned upside down overnight. Now, you knew all of that. Mm. Um, did that ameliorate any of the shock? Or, I mean, how shocking no. was it to, to be in that room looking at that screen knowing? It was surreal. I thought, this can't be happening. I can't have the illness I spent my life training to treat. And it, it was like I was an out-of-body experience. I was looking down on this happening in the room. And my surgeon came in and said, right, where do you want to be treated? Before she'd even done the biopsy, I knew, I knew too much. I've looked after people who've died of breast cancer. I couldn't not see myself in their space. And I went home and I rang my mum and I said, I'll be telling you in a week I've got breast cancer. Don't be silly. But whereas I thought... I knew what was going to happen. I'd never been a patient and I was shocked at how little I knew and what it was really like. So what were the things when you say what it was really like? I mean, you and me know what it's so, really like, but what were the things that, that so, jumped so, so, out at you? Take chemo. I've as, well, as, a, as a surgical trainee, you spend all your time in surgical clinics. You don't get to sit in oncology clinics listening to what oncologists tell patients. And I used to say you, you might lose your hair and you might not be able to work. That was kind of my extent of the reality of chemo. And then I'm having chemo and I realize you lose all your body hair, not just the hair in your head. And the sickness and the diarrhea and the sense of taste and how miserable it can feel and how poorly it can make you feel. I didn't I didn't get that because I didn't see the patients whilst they were having it. I didn't get how hard it was to decide whether to have a reconstruction or not. And I had the luxury of five months of chemo. I had no idea how much of a mental head flip radiotherapy can be when you're lying there topless in a cold room with your arms above your head. I had no idea. So this is this will make you laugh. When I was prescribing things like tamoxifen and letrozole, I would tell women, well, you might get some hot flushes and a bit of vaginal dryness, but it will settle down. And then I was 40, thrown into an instant menopause thinking, hang on a minute, how can I cope with this? And why don't I know how to treat me? And oh my God. We can often see doctors, I think, as bulletproof. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure we, as patients, entirely see them as, as human. They're, 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 you know, this godlike figure um, who has all the knowledge. Um, but I wondered how much that, for you being both doctor and patient, and as you said, knowing too much mm. about this particular condition. I, I wonder whether that caused problems in how you felt you should deal with it. I think it did, but I wanna jump back to something you said about doctors not being seen as human. I had suicidal depression twice as a breast cancer surgeon, just dealing with the stress of potentially telling 10 women a day they had cancer, their cancer had come back, they needed more treatment. We absorb all that emotion from everybody we see and you go into the next and the next and the next. No counselling, no coaching. It's just part of the job and you get on with it. But it's really, really hard to take that. I think when it came to choosing having an implant, which I'd had the first time, I felt I had to have an implant because I'm a breast reconstructive surgeon. And what would my patients think if they knew I didn't have a reconstruction when I offer one to my patients? 
Silly things like that. And during chemo, I knew it was meant to make you feel rotten. So I sat at home for 10 days with crippling constipation, bleeding piles, pain, not calling anybody because I didn't think I was meant to. And I think I wanted to be in control. And I didn't like not being in control as a doctor. Control is a really interesting word. And it's something that I've written about a lot. Um, Not coming at this from, from... a doctor's background, but coming at it from mm. being um, a confident woman who was u- used to making decisions about her career, yeah. about her life, about what the whole family were having for dinner, everything. You know, it, it, I was very much in control of my life. And when that's ripped away from you, and it's a really visceral rip, I mean, it, it, yeah. it suddenly everything spirals. I'm, I found that... Um, Yes, hideous. I'd, I'd seek out ways to to take control back. Really small things about decisions I made in my life. But I can imagine yeah. for you, even more so, was it really strange? How, or what was it like handing over that control to a colleague? The chemo was hard. I didn't see any other breast cancer patients during all my treatment. I was in a chemo suite with people a lot older than me having chemo for other things. And I just felt like I'm a body being pumped with drugs, that's my purpose. I went into work a couple of times just to see my colleagues and that was really weird. Again, you walk in with a bold head and they don't know whether to laugh or cry or hug you or what to say. It was I, I didn't go back, it was really uncomfortable during treatment. My surgeon said, the only way I can treat you is if I stop being your friend because it's really hard operating on colleagues. You have to just become a patient. And I wanted to tell her where to put the scar and what stitches to use and where to put the drain. And she had, you have to stop. And I think it's that I didn't want to accept it was happening to me. And part of me still can't believe I've had breast cancer three times. It's just that it's just so surreal. And I knew too much, but I didn't know enough and I didn't want to do. And it was hard finding people to talk to. I went on a couple of forums, Breast Cancer Now and BreastCancer.org, but it's really easy. You you try not to say that you're a doctor, but when someone says something, you think, oh, but, but that's that's BS. Let me do this. It's like, no, this isn't a space for me. And I found a couple of doctors who'd had breast cancer. And to be able to talk to someone who knew what it was like to be on both sides of the table was just a godsend. Hmm. You're so, so you're suddenly car crashed into this experience of being right in the thick of it, having all that treatment. Yeah. Did you Did you spend any time pausing there and thinking back on yourself as that doctor a few weeks earlier treating people and and how did you view how you'd been as a doctor till that point so I often get asked this a lot did I think I was a good doctor and it didn't did it make me a better doctor and I think I was actually pretty good at my job I was good at my job I've got letters from patients saying that and I think going through the experience made me realize There's so much more we could be doing to help people. And it's not necessarily my job as the surgeon, but making sure I know what the breast care nurses and the GPs and the physios are saying. So somebody is talking about sex or the menopause or exercise or diet and just helping them live. And I think I wasn't, I I knew I wasn't doing my patients justice when I saw them for the one year follow-up. To me, it's often a scar looks great, no recurrence, mammograms fine, off you go, see you in five years. It was like, okay, just flip through, next, 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 everyone's fine. But being that patient, there's so much you want to ask, not necessarily the surgeon, about how do I live with this? How do I deal with this? Who do I talk to about that? But you don't want to tell me 
because it's a busy waiting room and, and it's that and it's kind of why I do what I do now trying to fill that gap in the time doctors don't have to tell you what you need to know and patients not knowing where to go but I did change I went back for about a year before my cancer came back the first time I retired how I talked to patients and it also changed how my husband who's a surgeon broke bad news when you've seen the good the bad and the ugly and you see someone with what I'd call a routine cancer, it's small, it's node negative, it's a low grade, they just need just a lumpectomy and radiotherapy. I'm trying to be positive because I know how bad it could be. You know, and I've said this before, you know, we're lucky we caught it early and it's good that it hasn't spread. Trying to be positive. But when you're that patient hearing the words cancer for the first time, no one's lucky to get it and no cancer's good. And if they think it's the end of the world for a two millimeter bit of DCIS, that is fine. So I started using different language and letting them sit and feel before carrying on with what the treatment was. Different language how? I'm really interested in that. Instead of saying, you know, it's good we haven't, it's good we've caught it earlier, it's, you know, you're lucky it hasn't spread, it's saying it's cancer. And I would then stop and count to 10 and let that news sink in. Because when I go in to tell a patient, I know what she's got, I know what the treatment is, I've got, if it's an awful case, I've done my kind of, oh my God, swearing in the meeting, I come in, it's brand new for that patient. And often by giving them that 10 seconds, just to say the first question that pops into the head, whether it's, am I going to die? Or who's going to look after my dad with Parkinson's? That will then change how I counsel them to fit in with their life rather than I've got 10 minutes, I've got to go through all this shit, I've got to bang on. And just letting them feel and again when I saw patients at the yearly follow-up I'd often say right I know that a lot of women have trouble with their intimacy and sex lives on these treatments if that's a problem I can help and by telling patients it was normal they felt they could come to me for that advice and just trying to find ways in without letting them know I'd been a patient wow I, that yeah the idea of someone saying having said that to me um I mean I no one ever talked about any of the sex side of things or that impact side of things i've got other friends from the extensive now breast cancer community mm. who say what about and we all kind of get together in this whispered conversations of oh my god yeah exactly i spent that. most i spent most of <laughs> lockdown talking about sex to breast cancer groups but as a breast cancer surgeon, I had no training in how to treat the menopausal symptoms. I never heard anybody talk about sex in all of my surgical jobs, not just breast surgery. It wasn't something you talked about with patients. You told them how to help. It wasn't my job. And I didn't realize there was a psychosexual counselor in my hospital to treat oncology patients. I didn't know she existed. It's hard to talk about, and you may not be the person your patient wants to talk about it with you, but I think the world is changing and more and more people are now saying, right, okay, this is going to affect all of you. How can we help you get your life back to some sense of what it was? How does all this leave you feeling about how you were trained? Uh, and that there were these, well, f- from from standing where we are, quite yeah. big gaps, <laughs> massive cavernous gaps in some respects in, in terms of that knowledge. Yeah interesting as a breast surgeon there is so much information you have to learn there is so much oncology the trials the data the techniques hours and you have huge exams to pass as a consultant where you're meant to know all the results and all the trials and why we treat patients the way we do it's an awful lot to go on and I think the softer side how you deal with some of the side effects the menopause the sex the exercise that should ideally come mostly from the auxiliary services. So 
breast care nurses, GPs, physiotherapists, but I think they don't have the time. And I realize I have no idea what my breast care nurses tell my patients when I leave the room because I'm telling the next person they've got cancer. And often they're just going over everything I've said so it sinks in. So they don't have the time and often it's just a leaflet. I think it's realizing that if you're if you're a surgeon treating someone with cancer, then all their life is affected. And you need to make sure that someone in the team knows to give them information on all these things at some point in that journey. I think that's what I'm angry about, not realizing that to go back and say to my breast nurse is right, or write to the GPs, they're going to feel menopause or they can't have HRT, prescribe Vagifem. These are a list of things they could be talking about as a standard letter that goes out instead of patients going back and forth. So it might have changed how I help them cope in the community once I've done my surgical bit. Does that make sense? You can't be an expert in everything or you'd be, you'd be a master of all trades, jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. Um, going back to your kind of own experience of it, mm. I mean, you, you knew what was going to happen when you went into that operating theatre. I mean, you knew all too well what was going to happen. Were you scared? Yes. I was terrified of having an anaesthetic, which is ridiculous because I'm a surgeon. I think it's that feeling of being out of control. And my surgeon was in the room. Again, I was I was operated on by a team of colleagues I'd worked with as a locum consultant. They were operating on one of their own. Everyone was in tears. The consultant held my hand. The anaesthetist was amazing. And I remember the anaesthetic, the propofol burned as it went up the vein. Sometimes it stings. I just remember kind of crying. And then I woke up on the ward and it was absolutely fine. But that fear of I actually have no control and how vulnerable I was... Um, I was wheeled from the ward to the operating theatre on the trolley, you know, like your paper knickers, no hair, no eyelashes, my glasses are off. And I bumped into people I knew because I'd worked in the hospital. Hi, how are you? What are you doing today? And I'm going to have my breast cut off. What are you doing? But that sense of vulnerability, your uniform is gone. You're in a strange place on a narrow trolley waiting for things to happen. And that was really eye-opening. And when I went back to work, I made sure that I held my patient's hand as they were going under the anaesthetic instead of being in the coffee room fiddling with the notes. And I got told off by the anaesthetic team. So that's our job. He says, no, I want that woman or man to know that I've got their back and that I'm there when they go to sleep because I may not be there when they wake up. It, yeah, as you're talking, I'm, I'm seeing myself back in the kind of um, pre-op bit where I was being given um, my anaesthetic and it's, it's, you're right. It's those little details of caring, which actually really matter. My anaesthetist, when he first came to see me, he said, um, I know you like cycling. He said, I wore my lucky cycling socks. And I remember oh. looking down. Yeah. Oh, and he's got these blue socks on with all these little bicycles on it. And that, for some reason, was really important to me. It makes me yeah. kind of moist eyed even now. Yeah, and- I'm, I am. Yeah, and he just said, I wore my lucky cycling socks because I knew you liked cycling. And I thought, oh, gosh. <laughs> and he asked me about whether I wanted to have, I think, um, some kind of spinal injection first. Yeah. And by me being able to say, absolutely not, that will have me black out. I wouldn't deal with that. He went, no problem at all. We'll go a different way. And I felt I'd been given an ounce yeah. of control, just this tiny yeah. bit. Um so these little moments of a, a touch, a handhold, a sock on, you know, yeah. a bike on a sock, they love it. They matter. 
they matter hugely. And I, I looking back, I see like snapshots of these little moments yeah. of of um, huge caring. We try um, to care when we can. I think for me though, waiting in the theatre anteroom to be called through, I realised it was real. Throughout chemotherapy, I'd kind of been in denial. It's not happening to someone else. I don't really have anything. And then suddenly I'm going to wake up without a breast. This is actually real. This is actually happening. Did you have your reconstruction done at the same time, first time round? Yes, I did. Yeah. For several reasons. Um, apart from the, the decision making, I, I used to wear quite low V-neck dresses for work. And the thought of wearing a full cupped bar, bra as a small breasted woman, like it, the bra would show. I thought, I just, I can't do this. Um, but because I'm slim and I needed radiotherapy, there was no way in the future I was going to grow enough of a tummy to create enough skin to recreate a breast envelope. So if I didn't have a reconstruction, I'd never have one again because the skin would be damaged after radiotherapy. It wasn't going to happen. So this is my one chance to see. And I knew there was a chance that radiotherapy would give me a bad capsule, which it did. But I, I wanted to take that chance. Now... I wish I'd just gone flat, but that's five years of being used to being flat. And you have to make a decision for you at the time, not your family, not your friends, and say, whatever you wanted at that time, that's okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, three years down the line, I wish I'd gone flat. Yeah. Um, I opted to have a, a Lat Dorsey reconstruction, and it, it's just been <laughs> horrific. Um, and I, I, If you get a problem... It's like they say the, the odds of a complication may be 5%. You may think that's really low, but when it happens to you, it, it's it's 100% and it can be really hard to live with the collateral damage of treatment. Yeah, and, and the, the, the collateral damage of the treatment physically, but I think also mentally, I, I, you know, you can mm. blame yourself for the decisions that you make. Yeah, Even why was I vain? Come... Why did I have yeah. it? But you shouldn't. Vain. Please you don't. Said the word. Oh, you know, that I whole did. business of this is... Is this vanity? Is this vanity? No, it is incredible and... <gasps> that surgeons have developed ways to give women their breasts back and their shape and leave the hospital looking almost like they did when they came in compared to what we used to do. It is incredible. We want to do this. It's not vanity. It's normal to look like a woman with two breasts. So please don't, don't feel like I did guilty that you are choosing it for vanity. Yeah, I think, I think at the time I didn't, I, I, I was comfortable with it. Anyway, I'm turning this around to talk mm. about me, aren't I? But it just, it, I think the whole thing of how you choose, whether you choose to have a reconstruction or not, mm. is is really interesting. And I don't know that we chew over that stuff enough. And it's not rational. It's You can't think rationally about what your breasts mean to you because you don't think about them normally every day. And then one's got cancer and you're dealing with a whole psychological trauma of a cancer diagnosis. Most women only get two or three weeks to make that decision. And it's a huge thing to make. Massive, massive. And and the fact that you might have made it differently, you know, three, five, eight years down the line, mm. it doesn't make any difference. Because when you're in the thick of the fight, you're, you know, making decisions the best you can. Yeah. Um, and and you just have to hope that they're the right decisions at that moment for you. Yeah. Um, the whole business of... I suppose that, that that choice over whether whether we had a reconstruction and and uh, how you view your body connects us to to the whole th through to the whole thing of identity, I think, and how we view ourselves. Mm. And and for you, um, when your breast cancer came back, you ended up 
I know having to retire from from yeah. being a surgeon. Um, so it was the identity of a different kind of shift. But yes. um, I wonder if we can push around the idea of identity a bit, because how did you feel initially about, I mean, did you see now you were having to identify as someone with cancer? Where did cancer come into yeah. your picture of yourself? I stopped being a breast surgeon and I became a breast cancer patient the first time. And I was the first person in my group of friends and the family to have cancer. And it's all anybody wants to talk about because they're curious, they're, they're nosy, they want to know how you are. And friend meetups would just be, can we not talk about my cancer, please? I, I'm, I'm not just a cancer patient, there's life going on. And for me, it was dealing with brain fog and I got neuropathy in my fingers. I thought, can I operate again? Can I go back? How can I go back? And it was really hard going back, but I felt I'm still a surgeon. I could do so much good knowing what I do know. And then when I had a local regional recurrence and the side effects of the surgery meant my arm didn't work properly, so I physically couldn't operate, that killed me inside. On top of the grief of, you know, I'm, I, I can't, the infertility and everything else that comes with cancer, suddenly I've been, if you meet someone at a party, hi, I'm a breast surgeon. I'm not a breast surgeon anymore. I'm 43. I've lost my income, my financial independence, my purpose in life, my reason for getting out of bed in the morning, all because of a cancer that's come back that I spent my life training to treat. This is not fair. I don't know who I am. And one of the problems of medical training is the sacrifices you make, the long hours. I had no hobbies, nothing I did. My life was surgery, come home and see my husband. And I thought, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And who am I? And that was really, really hard, let alone, God, I, I used to stare at women's breasts on the tube, seeing who'd had implants and who hadn't. You know, they, she's had a boob job, she hasn't. And now I just look at cleavage thinking, I miss my cleavage. I didn't know, I felt, I didn't feel like I was a woman because I'd had my ovaries removed, I'd lost my hair, I'd lost my breast, I had no libido, no sex hormones, I felt ugly, I wouldn't look at myself naked, I couldn't flirt, I thought, that I, so much to deal with. So much on top of losing the job and it's, it's still a work in progress to kind of realise who I am. But I think it's quite nice exploring who I am without the labels of the breast surgeon with breast cancer and who is Liz? Fascinating. So much of this is 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 chiming with me um, because after my my cancer, Liz, I um, left a job of twenty five years in the BBC, and and had that same thing of at the time writing about you know being in a situation where someone says, "What is it? What do you do?" And you yeah. think. I don't know what I do um you know and those cold questions of who am I um yeah have, have bounced around for me for quite some time too I've gone back into doing what I did before but with Adventurous Audio and and, and having an independent production company so that um has I've got that to link back into but I think I find those questions suddenly of of how we define ourselves really mm. interesting and although they're difficult I kind of like walking around and having a good look at it and thinking yeah hmm, maybe this is an opportunity to think of myself differently yeah. and I find that quite refreshing and in part because you I don't know I think cancer allows you to 
to shift your perspective and opinion on so much stuff that maybe other stuff bubbles to the surface that defines you, different Mm. values, different things you care about. And maybe we start to think of ourselves about that, you know, in in, in connection to, to what we care about starts to define us. I was always going to lose my job when I retired. I was always going to have this moment when I stopped being a breast surgeon, I'm just someone at home. And I think almost doing it at 43 made me realize how unhealthy and unhappy I was outside of work because I had no life. And so many people have a massive illness to make huge changes in their life because they don't, they can't do it without that huge, huge push. And actually, I think I'm happier and more confident and stronger and doing more crazy things now than I ever would have done had I not had cancer and I'd have been a jobbing breast surgeon retiring at 67, no kids, what do I do now? It, but I think I've, I found an inner strength. I think everyone does. You just have to go through treatment and you come out the other side and it changes you. And I'm a very different person. Do you like yourself more? I think so. <laughs> I, I'm, it's, it's weird. What does like and which bit of me do I like more and not like? Um, I love that I've suddenly found my own style. The glasses and the funny hair and the yellow. It's been quite nice experimenting and saying, okay, I can found a niche. This is who I am. I quite like that. I don't feel, I don't feel I'm going to be 50 next year. What does a 50 year old look like? I mean, that's, it's fantastic that that's changing now. I think I do like myself a bit more. The thing I struggle with doing what I do with a book and the podcast and, and all the videos is I spend a lot of my time, I volunteer most of my time in the week doing stuff to help other people because that's what I want to do. And I get lots of questions from lovely people asking me for advice and I try and help, but it's finding the time to say no. And actually I need to find time in the day to write my next book or walk the dog or go to the gym. And it's when you don't work and you don't have a role and you don't get paid for what you do, it's very easy to fritter away time. You know, the social media phone, oh, replying to all the messages at 10 o'clock at night. And and how do I find that barrier where just Liz can just be Liz? Bouncing back a little bit to something you just mm. said a moment ago. And that was about sort of what cancer has brought in terms of the the positives. And and maybe that's how you and and in terms of you know you enjoying life more, mm. maybe liking yourself more. Um, I I I have quite a thing about the positives that I think cancer has brought into my life. It's brought mm. an awful lot of crap, but there are some really big, solid, good things that have come with it. And sometimes my head gets a bit stirred up with the whole thing of would I have not had cancer because it's brought all this really good stuff. And yeah. actually in lots of ways, I love life so much more than I used to because I appreciate it. Mm. More. Um, yeah. And, and I wondered apart from maybe, you know, the, the, the liking yourself or whatever else, um, or being a different kind of person. If, if there's other things that you feel cancer has brought that you think, yeah, you know what? I'll keep that. That's, that's a really good thing to have come out of all this crap. I will ask anybody anything. The people I've contacted or come in contact with through so Debbie Bliss is a friend, my knitting goddess. Oh my God, this is amazing. The, I'll just go and ask anybody, can you help? And most people say yes. So just using, discovering the power of good that social media is and finding these network of friends. So 
they they knit me Barbie dolls. They send me stuff through the post. It's just, it's lovely. I love that people are kind to that kindness passes on. That's been incredible. I love discovering that I like talking in public. I love being on a stage and making a room full of people laugh or cry. And for me, that's like the theater of being a surgeon. And I love being able to do that and share. Maybe if I can make one person think differently about how they treat a patient, that gives me a real buzz. That's kind of like the ego stroking. Um, I love that I've discovered open water swimming. I've had the time to do things in the day with a group of other women and men and just explore stuff I would never have done before. And it's the world is full of opportunities that I can say yes to because I'm not stuck in a job. And I think, well, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. It's it's maybe a little bit more spontaneous and carefree. When I say a little, I am the most controlling person you know. But there are so many positives. And you're never you're never glad that you've had it, but my life is so very different. And I'm I feel lucky that I'm now experiencing the life I have. I love it. Which that. does sound a bit weird to some people, but do you know what I mean? I I know what you mean two billion yeah. percent in yeah, that. If business you'd have told of, me yeah. <laughs> it's like ten years ago, you'll you'll have three books, you'll have a podcast, your your memoir's a bestseller list, you're doing this, you're doing that. You think, you're joking. That's not me. That's not her. She's not going to speak in America. It's like, I'm a different person, but I'm really loving this new person. Yeah, I I, I get that in every dimension. Um, I have a, a little thing on the back of my mind that sometimes says, but I so wish still that, that you know, in, in a sense, I've got all these amazing people around me that I'm now connected to through the cancer kind of community and cancer mm. experience. I sometimes slightly feel that although it's brought all these positives, the flip side to that is that I can't let go of cancer because actually our connections yeah. are through cancer. And and so that's that's a sting in the tail of all this wonderful stuff is yeah. that, you know, I sit, I'm lucky enough to live by Loch Ness and I can sit at the, the side of the loch and I'm, consumed by the beauty of it all is it's absolutely stunning and it it's fragile and perfect and amazing and I fill up with it and in the back of my mind I know I fill up with it because cancer's sitting there always just out of yeah. my peripheral vision making me aware of how precious it all is so you can't escape it no and I think my new career is being the breast surgeon with breast cancer. And I try to fight it, but it's all people want me to talk about. So my, my job is talking about the one thing. It's like, I never forget it. And I think it's hard because people say, you know, you look great because they don't, they expect cancer patients to look like you see them in the TV in the hospice adverts. And it's the, some days I want to scream and shout, yes, I look great. But do you know what I get up and I live with every day and the pain and the hair loss and the side effects and the scanxiety and the roller coaster? And I, it's like a huge... I've got a big chip on my shoulder of all the invisible stuff I carry around with me that has enabled me to do what I do. And it's that you can't ever forget it. And I do wish I had no, in, no introduction to this at all, that I was blissfully naive, but I would have been able to help my mum as much as I could if it hadn't happened. So yeah, it's funny. The psychology of cancer is really interesting. Yeah, I miss the innocence. I miss mm. that moment before this happened where I just cycled my bike and I didn't know it was possible to feel like this. That's yeah. what I miss. 
Liz, it has been an absolute joy listening to you and sharing thoughts. Um, where can people find your books, find your podcast, hear much more of you talking about cancer? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so my new podcast, So Now I've Got Breast Cancer, is available wherever you get your shows. And I'm answering all your questions with expert guests. So you can send them to me. I wrote The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer to help you go through your breast cancer diagnosis. And we're doing the second edition as we speak because there are 20 new drugs in the five years since we wrote it, which is just unbelievable. My memoir, Under the Knife, tells the story of learning to become a breast surgeon who then got breast cancer. And if you just put my name into Google, you'll find my website and you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. Please Liz, get in touch if you've got a question. Thank you so much. It's been brilliant chatting. Thank you. <laughs> it's been an absolute delight. Thanks to, of course, to Ali McRitchie and the whole team at the Head Gardener Hair Salon in Inverness for their sponsorship and their support. It's worth noting that the Head Gardener also provide expert advice if you're losing your hair due to treatment and want to think about a wig. So give them a call. They've got a private space for you to talk about it and try stuff. They get it, basically. Um, I'll be back with the next chapter from the Lump Story next episode, and it will be time to start recovery from surgery. I thought the next bit would be plain sailing. Oh, how wrong I was. Lump is written and presented by me, Penny Stewart, and produced by Adventurous Audio. 